Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for turning out on Halloween night. Um, Well, we're very pleased to have this session which is going to be about the new NATO strategic concept. Um, And, you know, we're living at the moment in a really terrible, perilous times. I mean, it's not just climate change. It's not just the economic situation. It's also, of course, the war in Ukraine. And it's a really difficult moment. And at that moment, NATO produces a new strategic concept, which is, I think, really different from in the past. I'm not going to say how, because I'm going to let our speakers talk about it. But I think it's a really interesting and significant moment. I think we're seeing a, a possible big change in the nature of NATO with, I think, a Europeanization of NATO, with the additions of Sweden and Finland, Uh, but also a change in ideas about fighting. I remember being very struck. I I was at NATO headquarters and I um, spoke to a senior official who said to me, I said, well, I would have expected Ukraine to make you go back to exactly the way you were before. And he said it was a real wake-up call for us. We realized we couldn't afford to have the kind of war we hadn't planned for with millions of civilian casualties. So the question is, is it really a big change? And is, you know, what are we going, this is what we're going to discuss and talk about. And we're very, very lucky to have Benedetta Berti, who is the head of policy planning uh, and very much involved in the drafting of the new strategic concept to introduce it to us. And then we have two com- very distinguished commentators, General Andy Salmon, who was Commandant of the Royal Marines uh, and led the British, the multinational forces in Basra and various other important positions, who's been involved in almost every conflict since the late... Since the Second World War. <laughs> since the Second World War. And, of course... Christopher Coker, who's the director of LSE Ideas and has written an enormous amount of very interesting and valuable theoretical and other stuff about the changing nature of war. So it's going to be a really interesting evening. And with that, I will hand over to Benedetta. Thank you, Mary, for the kind introduction. And I hope I'm tall enough to be seen from the lecture, but that's, that's what we have, so, <laughs> so bear with me. Uh, all right, so I'm going to give a little bit of an overview of the NATO new strategic concept that was adopted just this past uh, June at the last NATO summit. But maybe before I do that, let me take one step back, just a tiny step back to say a couple of words about what the strategic concept is and why we should even care about it uh, for those who are not full-time NATO watchers, which I assume is the majority of people uh, in the world and in this room. So uh, the reason why uh, the NATO strategic concept is a 
in my opinion, a good way to look at how the alliance is thinking about its political and military adaptation is because this document is, uh, if you wish, uh, a one-stop shop to understand how the 30 allies see the world. So what's their strategic threat, strategic assessment of threats, challenges of opportunities? Uh, how do they see the alliance? What do they see as being NATO's main tasks? And uh, what do they see as the political narrative surrounding the transatlantic alliance at large, which NATO uh, represents in many, in many ways? Uh, the strategic concept, in a way, can also be thought as the expression of a light grand strategy. Of course, it's a grand strategy that is negotiated at 30, so it's a little bit different from an exercise that it's done within a national system. But be that as it may, it's an important reflection of political priorities and political narrative for NATO. Uh, in terms of where it fits in a NATO hierarchy of documents, I would say at the very top we have the North Atlantic Treaty, which is, of course, our constitution. It is the charter, it's what created NATO. But one step down, from uh, the North Atlantic Treaty, you have the strategic concept. So it's quite important in terms of how uh, much political, uh, political focus the Allies placed on, place on it. Uh, what else to say about the strategic concept? I would say it's not just a document in the sense that after it is agreed, it is also translated into military plans, into policy, so it trickles down into the NATO structure. Um, one more thing to say, this is not the first time that the Alliance has undertaken such exercise. This was the eighth time since 1949, since when NATO was founded, that Allies came together to negotiate their strategy. In terms of understanding, trying to answer, I'll try to spend the next 10 minutes or so answering uh, Mary's question of what's new, what's relevant, why do we care about this document anyways. And I think a good way to do that is to start by just opposing it with the past strategic concepts and seeing the difference. So during the Cold War, and I'll, I promise I will do this in one minute, so it's not going to be a historical overview, but during the Cold War we, have, we had four strategic concepts. Those were written by the military, they were secret, so they were not shared with the public, and they pretty much focused on one question, how to effectively deter and defend against the Soviet Union. That's pretty much what it was about. One threat, one theater, <clears throat> one focus. Then the Cold War ended, and NATO changed, NATO adapted, and so we had three concepts after the end of the Cold War that were very, very different. First of all, they were not uh, written or drafted by the military structure, they were negotiated by the political structure. Uh, they, the decision was to make them public, so they were no longer classified, and they reflected really how the alliance shifted its understanding of its mission, its purpose, and how it shifted the understanding of the security environment. So from being focused on only one threat and one theater, it became much broader. It talked about partnerships, it talked about crisis management, it reflected a post-Cold War understanding of the world, if you wish. And we had three of these concepts, 1991, 1999, and 2010. Uh, history lesson over. Let's go back to 2010. 2010 was, uh, to me, the last post-Cold War strategic concept. That's the way I see. Uh, I see the difference between what we negotiated this spring and what we agreed 20, 12 years ago. Uh, let me explain what I mean. Uh, the 2010 strategic concept reflected the understanding that the Euro-Atlantic area was at peace. It was actually written in the, in the first pages of the document. It started by saying the Euro-Atlantic area is at peace. 
the risk of conventional conflict is relatively low. Of course, we're going to face challenges and threats to our security, but those challenges are going to come from without the Euro-Atlantic area, not from within, and they're more likely to be unconventional, asymmetric, think about terrorism, and of course, because of that, the Alliance really needs to focus on crisis management, including a strategic distance. And if you go back in time, in 2010, of course, Afghanistan was NATO's biggest operational deployment. Uh, other things that are very clear in the 2010 strategic concept, I would say, is that it reflects, to me, the peace dividend culture. In other words, the notion that the Euro-Atlantic space is at peace and that we all share within Europe a set of norms, principles that ensure predict a, a level of predictability and stability. So it's a peacetime concept. Uh, other interesting elements that I would point out to make, because my, my, I, my, what I would like to do is make, the, is make a distinction with the, the new strategic concept, other uh, important elements to, to highlight is that the 2010 strategic concept talks uh, relatively little about collective defense, territorial defense. It talks much more about partnership, about crisis management, which, as we will see in a second, remain important. But the focus is decidedly different. And then, in term, and then other elements that I would uh, that I would note are very important is the alli the alliance in 2010 talked about uh, building, continuing to build a strategic partnership with Russia. It did not mention China with a single word, and it played relatively little. Uh, little attention to threats like climate change. This is for no faults of the drafter. It simply was not in the strategic mindset at the time. Uh, so fast forward to 2022, and uh, I would say much has changed. Uh, we started this process by flipping the assessment of 2010. So 2010 started by saying the Euro-Atlantic area is at peace. Come 2022, well, the Euro-Atlantic area is not at peace. Uh, the decades of peace dividend, and especially in Western Europe, we have we have lived and that have ensured our prosperity are, I would say, uh, very much uh, under question. And I would say that post Cold War uh, security environment uh, and the norms and principles that underpinned it are either dead or on life support because they've been violated by the Russian Federation for years at this point. In other words, we are not longer in this post-Cold War, post War world of predictability and stability. And that's the main point that the strategic compass tried to make. We are in a new phase. Uh, Post-Cold post War is not a great name, is a great term. I'm sure in, the, in, in a few years we'll be able to look back and give it a much better label, but we are in an interregnum, in a transition, if you wish. And I think that's the main message of the strategic concept. It says we are no longer a, we cannot take peace for granted. We cannot take the whole post-Cold War as European security order for granted. We cannot take our own security for granted, the security of our allies for granted. And there is a quite a difference because we're saying we cannot discount the possibility of conventional threats against allies, uh, which is a very, uh, I think, uh, stark uh, change from tw only 12 years ago. And, and that's, I guess, one of the points I'm trying to make. This, this concept signals the beginning, perhaps, of a strategic mindset shift. We'll see, of course, the proof will be whether we implement all the decision we took, but in terms of the strategic direction forward is much different. Uh, so how do we prepare for a war that is not 
necessarily a piece. Uh, the concept lays out three main trends that define our strategic environment. First, uh, pervasive instability. And that means that uh, the notion that crises are exceptional is simply something that belongs in the past. We have to deal with permanent crises, recurrent shocks, whether it's from climate change, whether it's pandemics, whether it's from fragility and weak governance, whatever it is, our periphery, our neighborhood will likely be uh, fragile for the foreseeable future and we must adapt and prepare for that situation. Uh, the second element the strategic concept mentions uh, that was never really uh, was never really integrated in a NATO strategy before is the notion of strategic competition, and I'm I'm sure you've all heard about it. I don't want I'm not going to go too much into 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 the details. But what the strategic concept says is uh, today we are in a we we see the return of great power competition. We see assertive authoritarian powers challenging us through both military and non-military means. We see them modern, uh, pursuing military modernization with relatively, with relatively little accountability and transparency. We see them investing in uh, disinformation, hybrid tactics ranging from economic coercion to the weaponization of energy. And therefore, we are living in a state in which co competition will be also the modus operandi. We are in a persistent competition. Um, I mention all this because it's really, really different from the way we perceived the world in 2010, or at least the way we agreed to perceive the world in 2010, because it's a political document. Uh, but the fact that now the 30 countries of NATO agree that this is the new strategic environment, of course, I think it's quite uh, quite telling of a shift in mindset. Practically, what does it mean in terms of the main policies of NATO? Uh, I cannot go through everything, but I will go through a couple, Russia, China, and, and then everything else. Let's start with Russia, of course. Uh, as I said, in 2010, the, the main objective of the strategic concept, the main aspiration was to build a strategic partnership with Russia. Uh, nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that aspiration. That is exactly the right, that was, it was exactly the right sentiment at the end of the Cold War to reach out across uh, what used to be a divide and try to build a strategic partnership. But the reality is that we all know how that went. Uh, we know it didn't work very well. We know that after 2014 and Russia's illegal and illegitimate annexation of Crimea, we put that partnership, that practical cooperation, pretty much we froze it. But then, of course, between 2014 and 2022, uh, the, the range, the scope, the frequency of destabilizing behavior by the Russian, by the Russian Federation only increased. And of course, that culminated with the beginning of this uh, brutal and absolutely unprovoked war against Ukraine. So in light of all that, uh, the change is pretty stark. If in 2010 we talked about Russia as a partner, in 2022 we openly say we cannot consider Russia as a partner. To the contrary, the Russian Federation today is the most significant and direct threat to the security of allies and to Euro-Atlantic peace and stability. So it's a very big shift. And because of that, the policy has shifted. Um, and what we say today is, in this particular context, what we can do is basically threefold approach. First, we can invest in strengthening our deterrence and defense, and that's, of course, always been at the center of how NATO looks at its relationship with potential competitors and adversaries. 
Uh, the second element, which is new, uh, at least it's new in its formulation. We've always done it, but now it's now it's uh, now it's incorporated officially in the policy. And it is we build resilience. Uh, both in our own societies and working with our partners against malign interference, coercion, subversion, and attempts at aggression. And then the other main, main shift is in 2010, and since between 2010 and uh, 2020, and the new strategic concept, we talked about a policy with two pillars, deterrence and defense and dialogue. If you look for the word dialogue in, in the new concept, you will not find it with reference to Russia. Right now, we talk about keeping open channels of communication to prevent incidents, to prevent escalation, but we're not talking about building a rapport or building a dialogue, at least in this particular situation and until there is a change of behavior from the Russian Federation. So that's a big change, uh, and it's also a big, it's, it, and it's probably the one that received most attention in the, in the public coverage of the strategic concept. The second main topic that received quite a bit of attention because it was a shift is the fact that this is the first NATO strategy in 74 uh, years that addresses China. Um, for many years, the word China did not appear in NATO discussions. It just simply was not on the table uh, because the notion was that Euro-Atlantic security uh, allows us to focus, to have a focus that is much more restricted. Uh, over the past three, four years, allies have changed their views on that, and they've actually, uh, they've actually stated in this new concept adopted in, in June that they see, although they do not see the People's Republic of China as a military adversary for NATO, they do see co its coercive policies and stated ambition on the global stage as posing a potential challenge, and the, the framework is one of systemic challenge to, uh, to, to your Atlantic security. And that means that there is uh, much more focus on better understanding what this challenge is all about, better understanding how, uh, how it affects your Atlantic security, so building situational awareness, and then on that basis enhancing resilience and preparedness. <clears throat> and again, resilience means critical infrastructure, digital infrastructure, 5G, uh, civilian satellite communication, but also uh, looking more and more about foreign direct investment, foreign ownership of our critical assets and infrastructure. In other words, how to uh, shore up and ring fence our democracies, societies, and key uh, key assets, key, uh, key critical assets, and mitigate strategic vulnerabilities, uh, which is something we hadn't talked about before quite as much. Uh, the rest of the strategic um, strategic assessment focuses on the enduring threat of terrorism, but in a much broader, I would say in a broader understanding, really linking it to, uh, to fragility, weak governance, linking it to, um, to forced migration, and, and looking at, I think, a slightly broader uh, picture. And then the other main change in terms of, uh, in terms of emphasis is this the strategic concept of 2022 is the first one that defines, uh, at least is the first NATO strategy that puts climate change as one of the top priorities for the alliance to uh, respond, adapt to, contribute to, mitigate. And he posits that climate change is a, is a, is a defining challenge. Uh, that's important because, of course, for many years there was, uh, there was a, 
an assess there was a in a way a fictitious division between soft and hard security and confining certain certain topics like climate change very much outside the military realm that's no longer the case we see climate change as having a profound impact on allied countries on our on our neighborhood but also on the way the military our militaries will need to operate now and in the future so it's much it's much more prominent in our analysis so because of that i would say that what emerges from this 2022 strategic concept is an alliance that is back to geopolitics back to realism and because of that uh, a little bit more focused i would say that it has been in the past decades in terms of its purpose so the purpose here is quite simple uh, at least in theory in practice it's not as simple but in, in the purpose of nato defined in the strategic concept is to ensure collective defense of allies as simple as that uh, at least at least on paper and to do that there are three main pillars and i know there's a q a session so maybe we can talk a little bit more about the practicalities of all these three pillars which we call three core tasks. Uh, the first is defense, is the deterrence and defense. Not surprising, this is NATO's bread and butter, but what the 2022 strategic concept does is it shifts back the promen, it, it, it gives primus, a level of primacy to deterrence and defense as the backbone of the alliance and the backbone of our, of our Article 5, which is our collective defense clause. So it really puts a bigger emphasis on this uh, role, on this task that, yet, that is that compared to the 2010 concept. The reality is that this shift, this reset back to collective defense didn't start in 2022, it really started in 2014. That was our wake up call as an alliance, that's after the annexation of Crimea, that's when the allies said, well, we have to go back to the drawing board and really invest in the territorial defense of Europe because we just cannot uh, take it for granted, like to some extent we had done in the post-Cold War years. So, uh, so 2022 puts a large emphasis on the importance of deterrence and defense. At the same time, I want to say this is not going back to the Cold War. First of all, it's not going back to the Cold War because we're talking about multi-domain. So we're talking about land, air, sea, but also cyberspace and space as being all equally important in ensuring credible defense. It's also not back. To, it's also uh, not back to the Cold War because uh, there is a much stronger emphasis, first of all, on resilience, and I already mentioned this uh, many times. But I think that's an important change. So we're talking about strengthening our deterrence and defense, strengthening our armies, but then we're talking more and more about the civilians' infrastructure that underpin our ability to defend ourselves. And we talk about more and more about the interlinkages between credible defense and credible resilience. And that means that we need to work together at 30 to have resilient physical infrastructure, bridges, roads, digital infrastructure, 5G, uh, space-based infrastructure, civilian satellite, because our militaries depend on all of these in order to function correctly. Uh, but then we're also going one step further, and I think the recent energy crisis is a very unfortunate but pretty accurate example of why we're talking about the need to mitigate strategic vulnerabilities in order for us to have the right freedom of maneuver and the right ability to, uh, to do defense and deterrence uh, credibly and sustainably. So we're talking more and more about energy policies, uh, again, how to mitigate strategic vulnerabilities in our key industries, in our key technologies. So it's a much broader conversation that we have started as an alliance. 
in order, at the same time, I want to, I have a two, three more minutes, which I'll just take to say that it's not just about deterrence and defense. That's simply not good enough in this particular strategic environment. It has to be our primary focus because we need to rebuild something that we had to some extent lost in the, in the post-Cold War years. But we're still very, very much um, aware that in order to do defense and to ensure defense and security credibly, you also have to, one, remain able to do crisis management if need be. But the difference in 2022 is that the focus is really much more on prevention, which means much more resources for doing training, for doing capacity building, for working with, through, and by our partners. And that is a big shift of focus, and I'm sure if you want to talk about the post-Afghanistan's lessons learned, we can also bring, bring this shift uh, towards working much more with partners and putting the emphasis on training capacity building. Um, and then finally, uh, and again, this is why I say it's not an alliance that goes back to the Cold War or one theater, one threat, uh, one, one job. Uh, the strategic concept also says we need to remain able to do cooperative security, which essentially means to work with others because many of the threats we face are not bound by geography cyber threats, hybrid, threat, hybrid challenges, uh, climate change, terrorism, all of those require concerted efforts to cooperate with others. And so there is an emphasis on partnership that simply was not there in the pre-90s uh, pre NATO. And we're talking about uh, working more with aspirant countries. These are countries aspiring to become members of NATO. So we have three, Georgia, Ukraine, and Bosnia-Herzegovina. Uh, we talk more about like-minded partnerships, so working more with partners that share our interest in upholding the rules-based international order. We're talking more, this is the first NATO strategy that mentions working more with the Indo-Pacific. Uh, very important, I think. It's also the first strategy that says security developments in the Indo-Pacific affect the Euro-Atlantic theater. So we're linking the two in a way that we hadn't done before. Uh, and we can talk more about what that means. And then, of course, we talk more about working with the European Union, which is for us a strategic partner because with shared values and, and, and a lot of shared uh, goals, including uh, including the common interest in security uh, and defense in, in the security of Europe. So I'll, I think this is a little bit. Yes, I, I'm, I've gone two minutes over time, so I'll I'll, I'll start wrapping up in 30 seconds. I'm, I'm quite diligent. Uh, uh, so these are the main themes. Uh, we can discuss a little bit more about uh, about what I haven't mentioned. But in but in terms, if you if if I had to conclude with one takeaway point, I would say this this strategic concept is, um, in my mind, a watershed in the way the alliance thinks about itself, thinks about the defense, what it, the defense of Europe, and thinks about the security environment, and. Fundamentally, it's about preparing ourselves for a decade of more fragility, more unpredictability, more competition, um, which is not the most uplifting message to, to end my speech with, I, I realize. But nevertheless, it's better to prepare for the world as it is rather than as we wish it to be, because we have tried for a while to do that, and it hasn't worked very well for us. So um, I'll stop here, and I look forward to, to the comments and the questions. Thank you. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, 
Why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you very much for a wonderfully clear description of the strategic concept. And now we'll hand over to Andy. Thanks very much, Bernadetta. That was um, really fantastic to understand what lies behind a very 360 idealistic purpose driven NATO strategic concept. I was in NATO in 2010 when the last one was published um, and we were sitting with the chairman of the military committee, uh, all the generals, admirals and air marshals and the chairman said, we've got this new strategic concept and what we need is a new mindset. And so I stuck my hand up and said, so what's the new mindset we need? Well, that's for you to work out, okay? So we spent the next couple of years doing that um, and made, actually made pretty good progress. So if you remember in the Cold War days, uh, we had something called the military balance, which used to look at the qualitative and quantitative uh, comparison assessment of the Warsaw Pact versus NATO um, uh, countries and armaments, uh, which was a, a great document. Now, I'm not going to go into such depth as that, but I'm going to do, gonna do uh, what I call a cursory snot. You're probably wondering what that is, but it's uh, looking at strengths, needs, opportunities, and threats in relation to uh, the strategic concept. And I'm also doing it through the lens of the current crisis in Ukraine, uh, which is very much focusing everybody's mind. And I'll start with the strengths first of all. Well, uh, you know, remember the exit from Afghanistan, Trump running down, uh, NATO, what was going to be the future? All of a sudden that's changed really galvanized by Putin um, and powered up, I think, NATO, and I think that's reflected in the strategic concept. We're stronger, there's more nations, 30 nations, uh, uh, Finland and Sweden waiting in the margins, uh, swept up military organizations. Um, uh, hopefully they'll join um, you know, when Turkey acquiesces and agrees all of that. Um, I think the other one, despite Brexit, the UK's still in. Uh, NATO, uh, which actually is quite significant because uh, the UK is uh, a significant military player still um, and provides a lot of leadership in NATO. Um, and even though I'm a, I don't mind saying that, I've seen it. Uh, we also are thankful for having um, some quite committed US leadership as well, uh, and in particular nuclear capability that is mentioned as strategic concept. And there is no doubt that we need uh, the US military architecture I can recall after a couple of weeks in the Libyan crisis of 2012, when we were starting to run out of missiles, um, that if it hadn't been for the US stepping in with their military uh, surveillance target acquisition targeting architecture, Libya just wouldn't have happened. We really need the US in, uh, providing all of that support behind the scenes. Um, there's been a legacy of pulling together since that last uh, strategic concept of some very good operations, K4, um, in Kosovo, S4 in, in Bosnia, and uh, from a human security pers perspective, things like the counter-piracy operations um, of Somalia have been very good. And also, internally, NATO's more swept up, uh, digitally, uh, technologically, and uh, we built a new uh, 
uh, Crisis Management Center in 2012 called the Comprehensive Crisis Operations Management Center, uh, which uh, got into full swing in 2014 as a result of the, Ukra of, of, of the invasion of Crimea. So I think overall, strengths-wise, more cohesive and coherent. And then I think that's sort of good when we look at the actuality of the strategic concept. Now, what are the, the opportunities? Well, they're catalyzed by this crisis. Um, there's an opportunity to demonstrate resolve and bring this concept to bear, which will demand great leadership, diplomacy, and outreach. Uh, capabilities need to be strengthened. Uh, we talked about um, you know, building some of that resilience and that core military base uh, from that we had in the Cold War. So 100 billion announcement um, boost in German defense spending, getting it to the threshold of 2% of GDP uh, is a real step in the right direction as far as that's concerned. Uh, we're looking at uh, Baltic states that are, are just much more uh, swept up than, than they were before, uh, matured since the end of the Cold War, um, done quite a lot of work in Afghanistan. Uh, so, you know, we're stronger in that, uh, in that uh, respect too, but we've got to keep building on it. We've got to build more flexibility and really demonstrate more in terms of the NATO response force and the way that we reinforce the eight battle groups that have been moved to uh, the Eastern Europe as a result of the crisis. So keep, keep building on that. And we've got to set, strengthen the interoperability, which is, I think, what Bernadetta mentioned at the end, end there, with other stakeholders and actors in terms of things like human security and terrorism. So that's, uh, uh, those are the opportunities. Well, what are the threats then, quickly? Well, there's this threat of a tactical nuke, which I think uh, would really cause problems in terms of the philosophy concept of extended deterrence. Um, I don't know what, want, to, want to guess whether that happened, how we would respond at all. Um, individual actors can undermine extended deterrence. So the pronouncement by Macron uh, that we'd only respond uh, to a nuclear attack if it uh, hit France. Um, actually, if you think about it, uh, could potentially give the wrong message in terms of an Article 5 response to any such consequence uh, to any NATO member. So uh, that, uh, that sort of cohesive messaging uh, needs to be watched watch quite carefully. Then there's, then there's Ukraine fatigue. Um, I think in the Times poll of the 7th of October, I know in, in the UK, 45% of young people support Britain's role. Uh, note that actually more people think Poland's more favorable than any other European country because of the number of refugees it's taken. But people can get very tired. There's economic hardship, costs associated with increasing a spend on defense. Uh, tougher choices need to be made. And that feel, feeds into that political fragility that we've been seeing in this country in particular. And the decision-making were, you know, politicians are quite susceptible to minority lo lobby groups who are worried about a lot of other things, like climate change and so, so forth, which is extremely important. Uh, but nevertheless can uh, create difficult choices to be made which undermine the resource uh, uh, required to really bolster the capability uh, the NATO needs to work this concept of extended deterrence. So what do we need then? In the military, there's a term called main effort. A main effort means that you provide all the resources available to concentrate on one main effort. Uh, so the main effort needs to be on Ukraine and Russia. It sort of pulls everything together. 
Uh, it also helps to explain the purpose and the focus. Um, and it overcomes huge distractions, uh, which we've talked about. And this feeds into a deterrent effect uh, to make sure that the costs and the risks uh, outweigh the benefits of any uh, rational or ira irrational decision by, by Putin, which means uh, it's got to be credi credible, our deterrent effect. Uh, quick, measured, uh, in response and demonstrating that capability through exercising and great messages and deployments. Um, the investment to make um, our deterrents really much more capable in the industrial base in particular. I mean, the rates of ammunition expenditure in Ukraine, for example, are huge. Um, and, you know, not only are we are running out of the key weapons that we need to uh, bolster up uh, the Ukrainian armed forces, but, you know, we're eroding our resilience and capability, just like we see in the Russian example. Now, these things take years to overcome and build. You've got to ramp up the whole of the industrial base to do that. Um, so that's a real issue for our resilience. Um, the communication's got to be uh, really spot on. I don't know whether we have a hotline like we did in the Cold War, but the message, messaging has got to be clear and unambiguous um, so that at least we're coming over as rational and consistent in the way that we're uh, uh, messaging this deterrent effect. Uh, then the next thing that Bernadette also mentioned, that we've really got to learn from Afghanistan on the limits of uh, conventional military capability. And there's two examples here that, that are mentioned in the strategic concept. One is human security, and that's all about looking uh, at a security scenario like this through the lens of people and delivering to their needs. Uh, likewise with terrorism. The terrorism, the military shouldn't be in the lead for terrorism. Uh, the military are in support. Uh, it's an intelligent, intelligence, police, uh, uh, evidence in courts, uh, judiciary process with niche military capabilities required to bolster that up. Um, and the, the, the link between human security and terrorism is obvious. Mm -hmm. Better human security, less terrorism. Uh, a poor way of dealing with terrorism, worse human security. So we've got to be careful that we don't exacerbate by this over-reliance on the military in other fields. Um, and that also means that we've got to strengthen our integration with other stakeholders to make sure that we learn philosophically, doctrinally and practically how to run these kind of operations. So three things in conclusion. Ukraine is an epochal test. It's NATO's moment to deliver its purpose and intention very clearly laid out in the strategic concept. Two, make Ukraine main effort. This will really, really help with extended deterrence, uh, but it needs wise heads and firm hands. And the third one is alliance cohesion. Uh, we've got to hold each other internally and externally Great advocacy, fantastic diplomacy, and superb negotiation to make sure that we stay together during our biggest test. That's it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mary, and thank you for the opportunity to come and talk. I, I used to address NATO Defence College in Rome 25, 26 years, I think, I, I did it. I always try to start off with a joke about NATO. There aren't many jokes about NATO, but I can tell you an <laughs> anecdote that when Bernard Montgomery was appointed first Deputy Secretary, sorry, um, Supreme Allied Commander, General Eisenhower, of course, was the first Supreme Allied Commander, uh, Winston Churchill was asked uh, his view of this appointment, and he said, oh, yes, well, Montgomery and defeat defiant in victory 
indomitable, in NATO, thank God, invisible at last. <laughs> and question is, is, is it sensible for NATO to be visible or invisible? It's been invisible for quite some time. It's also visible at other times. And I think it still isn't quite resolved in its own mind whether that's strategically good or not. Great thing about this strategic concept is that NATO has got its purpose back. This was questioned, of course, by uh, Macron, who's been mentioned a couple of times already, uh, who accused it being brain-dead. Uh, Robert Gates, Obama's Secretary of Defense, who, who talked about the collective irrelevance of NATO in one of the last years that he was in office. I think we can say, either thanks to what's happened in Ukraine, or I think for some time, the alliance is uh, now relevant. I would just say, in, in reference to Bernadette's point about the 1991 and 1999 strategic concepts, I think these were actually groundbreaking and very relevant indeed because they moved NATO from a, a basically a threat management organization into a risk management organization, dealing with a whole series of risks. Uh, piracy, which has been mentioned uh, in the Gulf of Aden, no, no longer a, such a problem now. Terrorism, cyber uh, crime, ethnic cleansing in the Balkans in the 1990s. But I'm afraid NATO made some critical errors uh, in the last 10 years. Uh, not all my fellow panelists will agree. It fought a war in Afghanistan, which could never be won. Uh, it uh, didn't prioritize any of these risks. And I'm afraid risk management is always difficult because different countries face different risks, uh, according to geography for one or culture for another. Um, yes, it forgot that Russia would be coming back into history at some point. Uh, and yes, we Bernard mentioned the strategic partnership. I think you can say that, that NATO didn't invest enough time and effort in that strategic partnership, but you could also say that the Russians didn't invest enough time or effort. But let's not get to the, the blame game. For me, I think the most important uh, problem and failing of, of uh, NATO in those years was summed up very well in a report by the European Council on Foreign Relations in 2013 called Europe's Strategic Cophony, reminding people that many NATO countries didn't think strategically, didn't think about what the world tomorrow. Uh, some uh, literally gave up thinking altogether. All uh, wonderful Latvian defense policy in 2012, we put our, our reliance on the openness and mutual trust in our dialogue with Russia, and on that basis it reduced defense spending by 40%. Latvia is now planning by the year 2026 to ban the use of the Russian language <laughs> in its uh, schools. Not a very sensible thing to do, I think, if you have a large Russian diaspora. This is the problem. You're making it up as you go along. What's good about this strategic concept? I think there's a clarity of purpose now that hasn't existed before, perhaps thanks to some of the speeches of Zelensky. Uh, I'm just mentioning Mark Galliotti recently, who said that he has used a language that we haven't heard in almost 80 years uh, in the European theater. So whatever you think, this language is, I think, extremely important. Very important that the first foreign call that our new prime minister, uh, Sunak, made was to Zelensky uh, and not to a fellow Western uh, ally. Also important, as we've heard, is the Russia-China axis. Uh, this is extremely important geopolitically. Uh, it's the end of Henry Kissinger's great hope that somehow Russia would not be party to such a partnership, that somehow it would be perhaps even an interlocutor between Beijing and Washington. That is no longer the case. This is, I think, a geopolitical reality that we have 
to face. Um, however, some weaknesses in the strategic concept. It requires us to spend a lot on defense, and I think that's unrealistic for all the reasons that you and I may understand about what's going to happen this winter, what's happening to our economies in the time to come. We will not, in this country, be spending 3% uh, on defense, whatever our defense secretary, Ben Wallace, thinks or not. And even when you're told that the Germans are going to spend a lot, remember that the Germans have been underspending and underperforming for 20 years. I just mentioned a German parliamentary report, parliamentary report in 2018, that found that only 39 of their Euro fighters could actually take to the air, that none of their Navy submarines could, were actually operational. In other words, none of them could actually take to sea, and that there were 21,000 officer posts which were vacant. Germany has a lot of catching up to do to get into a situation where we can even start talking about increasing defense. It's catching up. Um, the last point I want, two last points I want to make before I conclude. One is the good thing is the uh, increase in the NATO response force, uh, the planned increase from 40,000 to 300,000, the doubling of multilateral, uh, multinational, I should say, battle groups in Eastern Europe. Why is this good? because we've forgotten that mass is important. The fact that the Ukrainians are going to call or could call up another million people to help them next year in the defense, because this war is going to drag well into next year and quite possibly well beyond that into 2024. The fact that if the Russians declared martial law, they can also conscript almost an equal number of people. That is important. This is what NATO does not have, mass. Now we've woken up to that fact. But I think, for me, the great prize and the great strategic disaster for Vladimir Putin, even if the war were to end tomorrow, is the fact that Sweden and Finland are now members of this organization. It means that the Baltic Sea is now a NATO sea to a very large extent, so there is really no purpose for the Russian Baltic fleet. But also, if you're thinking of cooperative security, you're thinking about a future in which we deal with Russia in a dialogue and diplomatically, Think of this, that seven out of the eight members of the Arctic Council will now be NATO countries. And this gives the West, I think, a very strong position in any positive negotiations on climate change and the future of the Arctic. It also means, by the way, one other thing, that all but four members of the European Union are now members of NATO. And this makes it really possible and realistic for the EU and NATO to have that dialogue that they've never really had. They've always talked about it, but it's never really reached concrete stage. So my final conclusion is that I think there are some very positive things about this concept, but there are also some realities that we have to face. Uh, and my, the most worrying aspect for me is that NATO is trying to do too much. So yes, cooperative uh, security, yes, crisis prevention, yes, crisis management, yes, defense and deterrence, but you can't do all those things at the same time. And this is the main criticism that has been leveled at the American national security strategy, the revised one, a couple of weeks ago, that again, the United States is committed to doing too much. Blue sky objectives rather than real objectives. I'm not in a position, fortunately for me, to have to decide what priorities there should be. But let me just uh, add the cautionary word. 
you've got to be as pragmatic as you possibly can about what you can achieve and what remain limited resources. NATO's always had to deal with limited resources, even at the height of the Cold War. Thank you. Well, thanks very much for that sober reflection. And I thought we would have a little discussion among ourselves before we turn over to everybody else. But we want everybody else to join in. Um, and I suppose my first question is really to Benedetta, but it's relevant to all of you. Yes, absolutely. Is that better? Um, I'll, I'll get a little bit further forward. How's that? Okay, sorry about that. So, you were talking this strategic concept, NATO's got its purpose back. It's going back to defense and deterrence. And yet, if I think about NATO over the last, since the end of the Cold War, what has always struck me is that even though it was talking about strategic partnership, talking about crisis management, it was still predominantly a military alliance about the defense of territory. And there was always a, a really objective problem that since it was about defense of territory, even though the Cold War was over, and even though there was a strategic partnership with Russia, there was always an objective pr problem that there had to be an enemy. I don't want to go over again the blame game, because I don't believe NATO expansion is the cause of the war or the cause of Putin's behavior. But what I do want to think about is the problem with that has been historically with defense and defense, uh, deterrence is that it ha had this escalatory momentum. And what I, I think the really important question that I want to ask about this strategic concept, is there a difference in how deterrence and defense are going to be performed in such a way as to reduce that escalatory momentum. Because that's the really big problem that we face in Ukraine. We're really trying hard not to allow it to escalate into a greater war, even though we want to support Ukraine's defense. That's the tightrope mm -hmm. the West mm -hmm. is on. And the question is, does that affect how we do defense and deterrence? Is there a shift to more conventional defense and less reliance on nuclear does this is is there going to be a shift in how we do things and you mentioned climate change what struck me also was the mention of human security and of the women peace and security agenda which seemed to suggest nato was going to do things mm -hmm. in a different way mm -hmm. and is that what the mindset change is about Right. Okay. So that's a lot of questions. I will try. <laughs> Sorry. No, no problem. I'll try my best. Uh, uh, let's start with uh, how, how are we going to do deterrence and defense? Uh, I mean, on the one hand, the pillars, um, in, the pillars remain, um, remain conventional, nuclear, missile defense, underpinned by cyber and space capabilities. So it's already a broader, it's already five domains as opposed to uh, it's already a multi-domain understanding. Uh, are, are we going to shift to more? 
I, I want to start with the security dilemma problem that, that you put on the table. Uh, I think that, and just to make it not abstract, but concrete, I think the way the alliance is positioning itself, and I mean NATO as an organization, that we can talk about the individual allies, but as an organization with respect to uh, the war, uh, Russia's war against Ukraine is a, exactly a, an example of how do you balance different strategic interests and preserve credible deterrence and defense without, uh, without escalation, right? I think that we have, when it comes to this, to this war, and the Secretary General has articulated that uh, multiple times, different objectives. First of all, as an alliance, we have a clear purpose, and that is to ensure that security and collective defense of allies. So step one is to make sure that no NATO ally is threatened, none of our territory is uh, threatened, and therefore that's why the emphasis on deterrence and defense. And it was already mentioned, I just want to, uh, for those that maybe have not followed as closely, which I wouldn't fault you, there's so much happening in the world, but in terms of what NATO has done since February, it's been what I would say a very significant thickening of our eastern flank. So we used to have four battle groups, so four multinational deployments in the Baltic states and Poland, which were intended, were, were put in place after 2014, so after the uh, illegal annexation of Crimea as a deterrent factor, and I would say that as a tripwire approach. Uh, since February, we have added four more battle groups, so four more of these multinational deployments across our eastern flank. So they're also now in Hungary, in Slovakia. Um, why am I? Why am I missing? Yeah. Uh, Pol Poland, yes. Yes, I got that. So there's Bulgaria, Bulgaria and Romania. Thank you, Jamie. <laughs> Must be the must be the lack of sleep. So we have the whole eastern flank with uh, with uh, with eight battle groups. We're also bolstering the presence in terms of land, sea, maritime. So it is uh, it is a it is the beginning. It's not it's going to take years to get us where we need to be, but it's the beginning of a shift towards a more active, more forward defense approach. So that's step one. We are sending, and I think it's been sent very clear signals to the Russian Federation that Article 5 is um, sacrosanct, strong, I'll use the word of your choice, that every inch of a light territory will be, will be defended. So that's, that's one part of the efforts. Another part of the effort is, of course, to recognize that what is happening in Ukraine is, well, first of all, uh, the gravest security crisis since the end of the Cold War. It is uh, a human tragedy of monumental proportion. It is something, it is absolutely unthinkable that uh, that we see this war raging in the, mid in the midst of Europe, uh, where Ukraine is fighting for its right to self-defense and for its right of existence, really. Uh, but we also see that it's not just about Ukraine. What happens in Ukraine has an impact on European security order. It will have an impact on what kind of European order we live in. It will have an impact on whether we will go towards a, to establishing stability and peace in Europe or not, and it will have an impact on the rules-based international order. So for all these reasons, and also because it's the moral thing to do, we are supporting Ukraine. So this is the second objective. So defend the light territory first and foremost, support Ukraine, uh, 
NATO does it through non-lethal assistance. Individual allies provide lethal assistance. We provide coordination on the, on the non-lethal assistance bit. But the point is to support Ukraine to defend itself for as long as it needs with what it needs. And then, of course, as NATO, we also have the objective and the, the responsibility uh, to avoid an escalation. And, th and that also requires very clear signaling. And we have signaled very clear to Moscow, we are not a party to the war. We are not interested in a war with Russia. We pose no threat to Russia, but we will defend ourselves if attacked. And I think the message is consistent with who we are and with our posture. So it is really always about balancing these different uh, prerogatives. I think in the case of Ukraine, we're doing that effectively. Uh, in terms of in terms of in terms of policies, but uh, as you said, it is deterrence and defense is an art. It's not a science. It's about signal. It's about commitment. Uh, so it's it's complex. But I think that's that these are the multiple objectives we are uh, we are care we are balancing at the same time. Do I answer some of your yes, questions? Yes, you do. But, but I'm I still, also I I absolutely, and maybe the others would like to come in before I ask another question. Mm -hmm. I, I was going to ignore your question and ask, answer another one. Okay. <laughs> Go on then. Okay. Well, I just want to say something about the, the, the expansion of NATO, which I think is a very, very bad uh, idea. Um, rather like the expansion of the European Union. You know, is a, if the Europeans have difficulty enough dealing with Poles, uh, Bulgarians and Romanians, but particularly Poles and Hungarians at this stage, we should think very seriously about this uh, as well. You know, there are cultural fault lines that run through NATO that we saw in the Kosovo War, the degree of public support, which was huge in Scandinavia uh, and in the Netherlands. Um, middle, middle ranking in the United Kingdom and France, around about 65%, and pretty low in the Mediterranean countries. And you could say that was to do with geography. I would say it's a lot to do with actual culture, Protestantism, various other things of that which we could go into. There are cultural fault lines that run through every organization, that run through the European Union, that run through NATO. If you're going to add people from even more diverse cultures, you're going to have great difficulty actually managing the whole show. The other thing is that it is no bad thing trying to persuade countries that they have to live with Russia outside NATO. This is something that Finns understood for a very long time. It's something that the Norwegians understand and the Swedes understand because they've lived with Russia as a neighbor. And one of the things I think that people should be aware of is the extent to which Norwegians, uh, less perhaps the Finns, are a little concerned about the gung-ho attitude of some Western NATO members about what's happening in the Ukraine, kind of <coughs> indivisible support that you're actually getting. They're actually asking serious questions. What do you mean by a Russian defeat? and the Ukrainian victory, we may have to deal, as we've always had to deal, with compromise rather than go for the all-out. This is something that I think we should seriously entertain, because this war in Ukraine, I think, will go on well into 2024, and we're not prepared for that. Uh, well, I partly agree, and I partly don't agree, but I, what I would like to ask you is, you were saying you were in, you were commenting rather positively about the addition Sweden. of Sweden yeah, absolutely. and Finland. So doesn't that contradict what you've just said? Not at all in terms of cooperative security. But when, when it, we have to sit down with the Russians and we have to start doing deals with them at some point, now, whether that's Putin or whether it's post-Putin, which could be worse than Putin, or post-post-Putin, whatever it is, cooperative security is, I think, the long-term future. 
Yes, and okay. I totally agree mm. with that. And I think that is, I mean, and that was what I was trying to get at in my question, which is that NATO's whole culture, strategic culture, was established during the Cold War. And after the Cold War, we all hoped for a completely different time. I mean, that's why people like me wanted the dissolution of both NATO and the Warsaw Pact and the establishment of a sort of Helsinki-type pan-European security arrangement that would have, at that time, included Russia. And it would have been a different kind of cooperative security linked to human rights. And so I suppose my question is, is NATO, perhaps because of the addition of Sweden and Finland, and perhaps because of the realization of the risks of escalation, is there a kind of shift going on? So if two points. One, if, you, if you're talking about the understanding that, for example, when it comes to dealing with fragility or, or asymmetric threats, you need to have an approach that, that you need to recognize that the military is only one piece of the puzzle and not even the bigger piece. Mm. I think that's for sure. And it was already mentioned as, yes, there is a role for, for the military in support in counterterrorism, but if you really want to address, if you really want to engage and contribute to stabilization yes the military have a role but most of the most of the tools are non-military it's about political reconstruction development recovery uh, political reforms human rights transitional justice all things nato does not do because it's not our job others do it and that's we work with others so if it's about do we understand that security is more than the military of course do you do you understand that when you do a, that when you operate in a non-permissive environment providing security is necessary but not sufficient Absolutely, and that's why the strategic concept gives a really prominent role to human security in a way that hadn't been done before on integrating uh, gender perspective, human security, climate perspectives into everything we do when it comes to, under to addressing security risks. So that's one point. But that, to me, it's very different from the other point you made, and I will gently push back and I will say, we have to look, and that's why I ended by saying we have to look at the world as it is, not as we wish it to be. Uh, and I think we had uh, very high hopes during the 90s, a lot of idealism. It was, remar it was remarkable. It was uh, um, somewhat ill-placed. There were some notions, and I'm talking not as NATO, but as Benedetta, so take my, take, take my opinion <laughs> or ignore it as you wish. We had all, we had this uh, this set of beliefs: e globalization and economic integration will bring us all closer. We're going to be able to cooperate with everyone. Well, guess what? We are not. Uh, today, the Russian Federation is a totalitarian system with values that stand in opposition to what we stand for. We could also. Will we need to find a modus operandi? Absolutely. We will need to find a way to live together? Absolutely. But not while they're bombing the hell out of civilians and while we're seeing mass graves and forced deportation of people out of their country. We also need to see what's happening at the moment. And I think the notion that having been nicer out in the 90s to Putin to <laughs> would have led to a better outcome is just... It's nice, but it doesn't fit his mindset. President Putin went to the Munich Security Conference in 2007 and told us, 
I don't want the post-Cold War order. I want to claim back what, what I think I lost. I want, uh, it, it was a revisionist, imperialist notion. He told us, we didn't listen because we thought this is really, really bad. We don't like it, it's not nice. We're not gonna pay attention to it. But he did exactly what he told us. So I don't think, so I, I think that some, yes, diplomacy is great and we have to continue to invest in it, but we have to be, I think, quite clear-eyed as to who we're dealing with here. And this particular regime, I don't think, I, I, I think the notion that if we would have given more carrots, they would have simply relinquished their new imperialist ambitions, I, I don't see it. I don't see it. I, I, read, I read very carefully the, the domestic debate. I hear the way uh, this particular government in Russia is talking about Ukraine as its uh, manifest destiny to, uh, to, to own it. I, I, I simply don't see it. It would be nice, but I, I don't think Look. that matches reality. I'm not going to get into a discussion, but actually, I agree with you. Oh, I, I really <laughs> do agree with you on this point. But I'm, I completely agree with you that the rise of Putin has nothing to do with NATO expansion. Having said that, well, I could go into what, where I think the West was responsible, which has to do with shock therapy and dependence on oil and things like that which I think did contribute to Putin. But having said that, I think at an early stage, if we'd had a tighter Helsinki agreement and more concern about what was happening domestically, right at the beginning in the early 90s, things might have been. But I completely agree with you. We couldn't have, you know, that, and, and I've always thought NATO expansion was a pretext, not a, but I don't think we should have given him that pretext, that's all. But anyway, I'll let Andy come in because I thought he wanted to, and then I'm going to open it to the floor. I just wanted to um, say that, of course, in um, the Cold War, when there was a kind of cooperation over conflict, wasn't there? And the concept of limited war, uh, which was designed to prevent this escalation. I think that the other thing about when you're mixing uh, the core culture, DNA of deterrence and conventional capabilities with, with all of those other human security, terrorism, gender and um, aspects. It's quite difficult when you've got to shift from one to the other with the same capabilities. Really challenging uh, because philosophically and doctrinally it's so different. Um, and uh, whilst I'm really encouraged by what Bernadette says in terms of they recognize that, that, you know, the military is a supporting actor in, in this. A lot of politicians don't, um, you know, who deploy military forces. You deploy the military black box, and that's what you get. The dogs of war come out, and you have a very different um, perspective on the ground. So it's really challenging to find that balance, and uh, I, I would suspect there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done on it. Okay, I think I've uh, allowed everybody, I mean, it's lovely having this discussion, but we can continue it forever. So I'm going to open the floor now to questions. And, and I'll take Jamie Shea, who for a long Make time a people remember as the spokesman of NATO. Oh, uh, Mary, Mary, thanks, uh, Benedetta, uh, Andy, uh, Chris, thanks, thanks very much. I, I learned a lot. 
my question is as follows. Um, as, as NATO, having done its strategic concept, now looks at Ukraine, uh, to my mind there would be sort of two big things that NATO would be analyzing on a daily basis. One is the Russian military performance, the Russian way of warfare, which is a mixture of, if you like, tactical in incompetence, but you know, strategic impact, destroying infrastructure. You mentioned this, you know, the electricity grid, creating environmental chaos, you know, creating humanitarian disasters, waves of refugees. And so my first question is, how is NATO interpreting the Russian military performance in terms of whether it sees the Russian threat as larger or smaller on account of that? And if collective defense now involves all of this environmental and humanitarian and infrastructure stuff, as Chris said, in terms of being overburdened, can NATO fight but handle all of those side effects at the same time? Is there a case maybe for pulling the EU in behind collective defense with its civilian humanitarian assets to handle that side. And then the second part of it, of course, is the Ukrainian performance, not just military, but civilian, the resilience, the involvement of the private sector, all of the civilian society initiatives. Are, is NATO sort of drawing lessons from Ukraine in terms of improving the resilience that you refer to in your talk? So Mary, thanks for indulging me. Those, those would be my two questions. Well, I'm gonna let, because we haven't got that much time, I'm gonna take two other questions and then we'll answer them together and then I hope there'll be time for a round, another round. And I'll take that gentleman at the back there, or in the middle, I think. Thank you. It was famously said that a war between two nuclear powers can never be won. And with recent estimates from uh, leading scientists showing that a nuclear exchange leading to a nuclear winter could kill over 5 billion people. Um, I'd let that sink in. That's over 100 times the population of Ukraine. Many of those deaths occurring in NATO countries. Is there a moral responsibility and an imperative for NATO to work in conjunction with other organizations like the OSCE to look at strategic off-ramps because it is Russian military and nuclear doctrine to use nuclear weapons in the event of what would be considered an existential risk to the NATO, sorry, to the Russian state. And if you look at President Zelensky's rhetoric around retaking all of the uh, territory, including Crimea, it's difficult to see how that wouldn't be interpreted as an existential threat by the Russian Federation. Thank you. A very important question, and that over here. Thank you so much. Um, I think uh, the, my question is best thought of is that, that there's, a, there's a level of, of competition between strategic concepts going on. And it was very popular, I, I mean, it was very made, we were made aware of the fact that, for example, the Russian Gerasimov doctrine of war making has full categories where the West has no response in its, you know, war making strategy. And that leaves fully three quarters of the war going on is not happening in Ukraine, but is happening in all these other um, battle spaces from financial infrastructure, potential attacks. I mean, the US um, Treasury and the UK guilt are in this extremely wobbly position. Um, but that battle space um, wasn't mentioned, but it seems. Um, and I guess the question along the lines of off-ramp questions is that <clears throat> perhaps the 90s was a bit romantic in the notion that we could immediately get along together and perhaps 
Ronald Reagan and the 60s uh, presentation of America, inclusive vision of a future was a bit more, you know, th thrown into the future. And whether in fact we don't need to, especially if what you say is we're headed to a punctuated diminution, uh, that means end game, uh, you know, from the iconography of the Z, <laughs> um, Russia is often featuring as the, the place everyone will retreat to with good reason. It's got lots of water and soil, and it just seems to me that there's a possibility to present Russia as a heroic uh, potential in it, and that that would actually be a way to not address the leadership, but the people, and include them in a vision of a world where actually Russia is the savior, but doesn't have to do it in this brutal, you know, genocidal conscription and all these texts and, okay, done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm gonna let everybody answer those questions and then I hope we'll be able to have time to go to the online questions. Yeah, do you want to start? I thought there was quite a lot from the NATO perspective in that first question. Um, you want to I mean, I can. I, the nuclear the, well, the nuclear one. About Russia. <laughs> the nuclear one. Well, yeah. The, the you know mutually assured destruction. Yeah, we don't want that. Of course not. <laughs> yeah, absolutely agree. One hundred million percent. Um, that I, I suppose um, the issue comes in how we respond to an actual. Uh, um, you know, worst case uh, perception that it's an existential threat to Russia. I mean, what Putin says is 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 creating a lot of wobbles, I'm sure, and it's in, 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 it's part of the dialogue to create his own deterrent effect. I'm sure the Russians are very clever at that sort of thing. So, um, how do we respond? Is a really brilliant question. I don't know what the answer is. Uh, I mean, if if uh, if a nuclear bomb was dropped on London, how would we respond? You know, we've got a uh, a nuclear deterrent. Uh, you know, submarines patrolling the world who can respond. I mean, what are we going to do? Um, if there's a tactical nuclear uh, explosion in Ukraine, uh, might be a different matter. You know, depending on the severity and the size of the the warhead, um, because some of these things can be quite precise. Sadly. Uh, so, you know, this is where I think this uh, extended deterrence, fusion of conventional and nuclear, um, you know, can unravel really quickly when actually it happens. And so that's why uh, the messaging, the uh, effect that we're having, the deterrent effect with all those things that I mentioned earlier, um, needs to be absolutely clear and unambiguous. And also, it comes back to eventually, there's got to be some sort of negotiation. Um, you know, do we want a, a stale, cold, frost-ridden uh, post-conflict scenario on the edge of Ukraine or in Crimea that we've seen so many times before, which never gets resolved? I don't know what the answer is, but those are some of my thoughts on that. Yeah, so I'll... I'll a couple of words about this question and then take Jamie's question but I mean it is we could talk about it and probably and, and we do talk about it obviously extensively uh, you already laid the parameters on the one hand there is very clear communication 
to, uh, to Moscow in terms, not just to what you said, that a nuclear war should never be fought and can never be won, but also the fact that this would have catastrophic consequences. This is a game changer. So in terms of is the signaling done to, uh, to, to the Russian counterparts in terms of what the cost would be, I believe that that's done in, by different capitals. NATO as an organization has been also very clear. Uh, and that's very and, and that's very important. But your question is, in order to avoid, should we take any off ramp in order to avoid that scenario? That's a very difficult question to answer. I would say, on the one hand, there, if if we followed the Russian Federation's net rhetoric on nuclear, they have been doing some very reckless nuclear blackmail for a better for for a while now. Um, there's been some really interesting studies tracking exactly how it works, and uh, and that raises the question: When are they bluffing? Are they not bluffing? What is the cost? I'm not going to answer any of this, but of course we are thinking about it. We are planning. We are we are having those conversations. But I will throw back at you a question in terms of price of nuclear blackmail, meaning yes, off ramp. We all want an end to the conflict. We don't. We absolutely do not want, and that's very clear in our communication, uh, an all-out war. We need to prevent an escalation. Is any price the right price to pay for that? Uh, and if we give in to you, I, I, I don't expect you to have an answer. It's just, uh, or maybe you do, and then we can talk about it later. Uh, <laughs> and if you do give in, where does it stop? How do you know that that's not going to be uh, extended to a different scenario. How do you know? And this, that's the same. Uh, and I think these are very weighty considerations. So we are wait, we are weighting all these considerations together and trying to have the clearest possible unambiguous message to uh, the Russian Federation and to Putin that this is reckless, irresponsible, will not lead to any. Uh, improvement in their situation and would have catastrophic consequences. More than that, I don't think I can say. Uh, in terms of Jamie's questions on are we learning, I certainly hope so. Uh, but I would make, given we don't have a lot of time, I'll be very quick. I would say one, I think we need to be very mindful uh, about making long-term predictions based on what we're seeing in this phase of the war, because I do tend to agree that this is more of a marathon than a sprint. So anybody who's very assured about the potential outcome, I would, I would respectfully question the grounds upon which he or she is making that assessment. So what I mean to say is, yes, there's a lot of shortcomings, a lot of operational failures, a lot of strategic doctrinal failures, a lot of really problems with morale, equipment, capabilities. There's a lot that we didn't know we knew that there were some dysfunctionalities in the Russian armed forces. We didn't know how bad it was. At the same time, I would caution about making sweeping predictions about what a potential conflict, let's say, between Russia and NATO would look like, or about the fact that uh, we, can, uh, we can plan and rest assured of the notion that Russia is always going to get weaker. Because even if Russia gets weaker, it doesn't necessarily mean that it gets easier to deal with. And then we go back to the prior question, what is a, very, what is a weak Russia? Uh, uh, what cards that it, does it have to play with? And does that make us feel more reassured about our security? So I'm a bit, I'm a bit 
uh, we are definitely doing lessons learned, but I'm a bit uh, hesitant about embracing a narrative quite yet. Whereas on Ukraine, I think there's a lot we can learn already about resilience, about civil preparedness. Also, if I want to uh, learn something from NATO perspective about the fact that security assistance is can work. NATO, uh, the European Union, NATO countries invested and work with the Ukrainian armed forces, as you know better than me because you were there for many years after 2014. And that has helped improve the operational performance. With that, still the credit goes entirely to them. They're the one fighting, they're the one dying. But this shows that supporting partners can work. So that's the lesson I'm learning. And I think we can learn a lot from Ukraine, absolutely. That's why it's a two-way partnership. Well, in response to Jamie's point, uh, I think we should be a little careful of what we hear some American generals saying about tipping points. Well, that was H.R. McMaster the other day, actually, a man for whom I have enormous respect. But a number of American generals talking about this is a 1917 situation. The Russian military is about to collapse. It's not. Uh, Russia is one of the most resilient countries of all, uh, and it learns the hard way. Uh, it learns through defeat. Um, and if you look at, for example, the, the appalling Russian military record in the first Chechen war, and then look at the successful, brutally successful uh, way they won the second Chechen war, and then we look at hybrid warfare in 2014, which caught us all out by surprise. The way that they've tried to fight this war has been silly and ridiculous. For one reason or another, we can talk about that. We can take the ultra-nationalist side and say that they were half-hearted from day one, or we can say that they were never going to the way that they were trying to fight it. They're learning already, I think. And if this extends for another 12 to 18 months, as so many East Europeans believe, but Anglo-Americans don't, they're going to learn even faster. We've got to be ready for that. And what should be the end result be? I used the M word negotiation the other day, for which I was roundly attacked by somebody you know very well. I said, there's no negotiation. I said, well, the only war I can think of which didn't end with negotiation was World War II. And that did require unconditional surrender. We were willing to pay that price. That wasn't a nuclear war, of course. Of course, it'll end in negotiation. Every war does end in negotiation. We can't afford another Minsk I or Minsk II. We can't afford another frozen conflict. And we can't allow Russia ever to be able to attack Ukraine again. Those, I think, are the non-negotiables. Within that, we will negotiate and I have ha to negotiate. I have to say, Christopher, that my worry is that it won't end. And that's, that's what we've seen in Syria. Mm. That's what we've seen in Libya, in Congo, in all the, in Afghanistan, actually. It hasn't ended even now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, I think, what we should really be worrying about. Um, Bernadette's point, if I may say, to just pick up something that you said, is that we've been at war with Russia for a long time. It's a different kind of war, this. This is a war on many different levels, which is what the strategic... Uh, concept actually understands we're not going to be at peace with Russia as we thought we could be in the 1990s. It's going to be competition and it's going to be not kinetic necessarily but it's going to be unpleasant and this will continue for some time. This is the new reality I think that we have to deal with. Yeah I just think there's also one difference with the Ukrainian situation. You've got Ukraine versus Russia. Uh, you've got a, um, a sort of mono um, effect uh, that you don't find in places like Syria and other places where there's been 
um, insurgency or, or, or terrorism or the Russian being able to play their playbook without resistance. Um, I think this is a bit different where, you know, there's a conventional full-blooded war going on, um, which will depend in terms of whether it ends or not on probably the industrial capacity and the ability to mobilize millions of people and to uh, endure the sacrifice, uh, which um, we'll have to see how that plays out. I, if I can add, but then I, we really ought to go over to another question. I mean, I think you can see, one, it not ending, and what I mean by that is that you can't sustain the kind of resilience and civic efforts that you now see in Ukraine. And if you can't sustain that over a long period, then you get the kind of disintegration you see in Syria and other places. And that, I'm sure, was Putin's goal. He doesn't necessarily want more Russian territory under his control. He just wants chaos as an alternative to democracy. And he'd like to see that in the European Union as well. So that's one option, chaos. The, a second option is escalation and a horrible nuclear war, as described by um, our friend up there. And uh, the third option, I mean, unless your negotiation option works, but I think the only other option is that Putin falls. And I'm less, op I'm not optimistic, I mean, I'm less convinced than you that Russia will learn, because I really do think that this is, there's so much disaffection among conscripts and soldiers that I think it's, you know, in World War II, they were defending themselves against Hitler, so people were ready to learn. I'm not sure that that's true in this case, but that's a question mark. Anyway, sorry, I'm the chair and I shouldn't be chattering away. Uh, now Dave is going to ask us some questions. Yeah, okay, so we've got, I'll rattle through these. We've got Sergio Moreno asks, could NATO consider declaring that Ukraine will not be part of NATO to pressure Russia to withdraw from Ukraine? Sonia Var asks, how can you expect us to take NATO seriously if it can't suppress internal conflict, notably with Turkey? Uh, Dimitri Kopakis asks, how wise is it to name adversaries in strategic papers? And finally, I don't know if we'll have time to answer all of these, uh, Carmine Soprano asks, NATO's borders on its eastern flank are now much nearer to Russia compared with the 1990s. Is there anything NATO could have done differently with respect to NATO enlargement since the end of the Cold War? Uh, do you want me to repeat any of those or have you got did we get uh, enlargement of adversaries wise wise adversary yeah, in the paper okay so the ukraine there, will yeah. not yeah um uh, should, should i give it a try yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> let's see if i remember uh membership uh okay so uh, as quickly as possible to to recap the state of facts 
Uh, in 2008, at the Bucharest summit, NATO allies took a decision that Georgia and Ukraine were going to become members of NATO. That's our baseline. That decision has not changed. It was reaffirmed in the 2022 strategic concept. Of course, it doesn't say what the timeline is, because, of course, decisions about memberships are political, meaning that they are taken by consensus, like every decision on NATO, by the 30 members. So that's the state of, that's the state of play. Um, NATO has in its foundational, in its constitution, in the North Atlantic Treaty, has an op it has enshrined as open door policies, which means the alliance remains open to all European democracies who are capable and willing to uh, take part of, to contribute to the security and the collective defense. So that remains our policy. That policy has not changed. It, it was reaffirmed in 2022. It will continue to be reaffirmed. And the reason is very simple, I think. I mean, it's, it's complicated, but I'll make it as, as I'll, my, my one, my, the simplest way I can say is it is about the, secure, the European security order we want to have and the type of Europe we want to live in. We want to live in a world in which territorial integrity respected, sovereignty is respected, in which countries have the right to freely conduct their foreign policy and to choose their own alliances. Now, that right applies to all countries. It doesn't just apply to the countries that happen by sheer luck to be on this side of the Warsaw Pact. And, uh, and I'm linking it to the question about expansion, enlargement, whatever other term you want to use. Uh, uh, I find, the, I find the argument, again, I'm speaking personally because this way I can be a little bit more frank. I find the argument that some countries have a right to choose their own security alliance and others don't uh, rather problematic. Um, so when I, have that, when I hear that discussion about the 1990s, I feel a little bit troubled by the notion that countries like Poland or the Czech Republic or Slovakia that endured uh, uh, years of years of brutal occupation or or Soviet in, in influence into their countries and then fought for their own democracy, won their freedom, and then wanted to join, uh, wanted to fulfill their Euro-Atlantic aspirations. I find the argument that they should not have those aspirations should not have been fulfilled because he somewhat offended Russia, even though in the Helsinki process he did agree that each country has indeed the right to pursue its foreign policy. I find that argument a little bit uh, troublesome. So I would say yes, I would say that 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 would be one of my responses. The second response is. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time in, a, in, in, in the Baltic countries, in Eastern Europe, thanks to this, to this job. And uh, I think the, the notion, I think if the notion of what would that part of what would Europe look like without a NATO accession, would it be in place given Russia's expansionism and revisionism? Do you, I, I'm not sure. That, I, I'm not sure that their security would have been. Uh, uh, assured in a different situation. I think now uh, the fact that these countries are under Article 5, they are under NATO, makes that all more, makes us all safer, makes a great, uh, very powerful deterrent for Russia uh, to not engage in aggression. And that's why it's uh, waging a war against Ukraine, which is not a NATO country. So I am quite partial to thinking that that notion about Refusing, refusing, uh, refusing membership from uh, former Warsaw Pact country is a little patronizing, mm. and it tends to be done only by Western Europeans because we were already in NATO. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So that's Benedetta's personal view. Not NATO. <laughs> not, don't, do not yeah. blame NATO for this. Yeah, I just um, was part of um, the first NATO delegation that went back into Moscow after the Georgia crisis. Um, and I think it's, it, was, it was very apparent anyway to me, um, and I was with quite a lot of Eastern European generals, um, of a sort of little bit of finger-wagging and humiliation factor appearing into the discussions. And I think how we uh, negotiate and do our diplomacy is absolutely crucial as uh, because if it if it's perceived as humiliation then you are going to get these kind of responses and I think we're dealing with um, you know Russia and they have a very different view of the world to many other people uh, the power uh, and the humiliation are linked and the other thing I think about Russia is that after great debacle there have been revolutions there's been massive change and I think in Russia there is a, such a systematic uh, fragility as a result of what's happened since the end of the Cold War. So I'm not sure, uh, unless they've got the appetite to do what they did after Stalingrad, and absolutely, I don't give a damn about what we do, how many casualties it's going to take until we get to the end. I'm not sure we're in that situation anymore. So it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. Do you want to add anything, Christopher? Uh, just um, Christopher Donnelly, who advised, I think, at least two NATO Secretary Generals, possibly more than two, was a Russia expert. Uh, he spent some time at Moscow State University in the 60s, I believe. But anyway, he said the important thing is the Russians don't do appeasement. Uh, because appeasement, uh, which we do in the West, because frequently appeasement works. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're dealing with countries that like to be liked, or countries that actually are rather fond of the fact that you are being nice to them and will give you something back. That is not Russia's historical experience. Uh, an appeasement means that you are weak and um, you are surrounded by people who will exploit that weakness and you will never convince them otherwise. So that is when we deal with negotiations, the history and the culture is extremely important. Um, and the example he cited uh, was, of course, the renegotiation of the Nazi-Soviet pact uh, after the fall of France, uh, when uh, Molotov came to Berlin and began demanding it be renegotiated, really in favor of the Soviet Union. Uh, and the Germans had never been, come across this before. We are the strong people here. The situation has completely changed. You're acting as though France has not fallen. Why? because they wanted to appear stronger than they actually were. And I think that is a, a reality. Donnelly's point is, is very well taken. Um, we've got to take those things into account if we believe in negotiation at some point. I'm not quite sure what that's got to do with Ukraine, but it's something <laughs> that is with the Everything. larger picture. Everything. I think I'm a little bit skeptical of cultural arguments, but we can have this later. But I do think I agree with the point that if you're a democracy, you should be able to join NATO. But right from the beginning, it was made clear that Russia couldn't join. There was no, it was never made, it, there was never an opportunity for Russia as a democracy to join. And I would hope that if NATO is changing, and if there were change in Russia, which there may not be, that there would be that possibility. And that speaks to the question over there about you know, somehow communicating 
with Russians and not just treating Russia as somehow intrinsically an enemy. And I think that was a problem. May I just... Yes, okay. So, but I'll be really quick. I, just on this point, I'm not sure that's the way I read it. I, I don't think that was there was certainly never a NATO policy that Russia couldn't join NATO. It was very clear from the beginning that Russia didn't feel that that was necessarily the way it wanted to go. But I think the one point I would I would put on the table is, after the end of the Cold War, NATO opened. When I mean it opened its door to Russia, I really mean it. The type of arrangements in terms of political negotiation and practical cooperation that were extended to Russia were not extended to any other partner. There is a special arrangement between NATO and Russia with the NATO-Russia Council, in which includes joint decision making with all the Allies plus Russia at the same level. No other partner was ever granted this level of political access and this level of cooperation at first. So uh, I'm not sure that that's necessarily where things went wrong, but I certainly, and I, I, I look at the first role for, for confirmation for those that have been in NATO more, Jamie gives me the thumbs up, so that means it's actually, I'm actually correct. I, I, they were never told they could enjoy, they just, it just never felt, uh, some, they ju it just never felt for them like the right policy solution. The I, 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 my instinct was at the time that all these partnership arrangements were substitute for Russia joining. Now, well, who, on which side that was, I, I don't, but that's what I felt. It was a substitute for Russia joining NATO. And had we had the Helsinki pan-security, had NATO become the military arm of that, it might have been different. But we, I know you're going to come back to me and no, we've no, got no. to finish. <laughs> so thank you, everybody. That was a really fascinating... <laughs> Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.